Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SACS's Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher, and I'm an associate professor at Clemson. I'm also your host for this program. Today, I am pleased to have Dr. Travis Smith at Auburn University, Austin McDonald at Florida State University, and Jamila Lee at the University of Wisconsin as our guests. Thanks to each of you for joining the podcast. Thank you for having us. So excited to be here. Absolutely. Before we get into your work and career, let's start with who you are as people outside of work. So any hobbies you have, things you're reading, watching, listening to, anything that you want to share with the audience. And Travis, if you wouldn't mind getting us started, what's up in your life outside of your job? Whoa, what's up in my life outside of my job? Uh, Number one is golf. So I'm trying to get as many rounds in as possible this summer, Uh, but it's hot. So you have to do it in the morning or the evening time. I just concluded watching Snowfall, so I need to figure out another show. Oh, and Power Ghost Book 2 uh, concluded, so I need to find something else to do with my with my TV time. I guess I'm watching the NBA Finals, so rooting for Jimmy Butler. Very good. Um, Austin, how about you? What's up? Um, well, I think, I guess for me, uh, I'm a ex-hoop dreamer, so I still like to get to the Y sometimes and Get some buckets up. Uh, like Travis, watching the NBA Finals. Most of your popular shows, your Snowfalls, your BMFs, that type of stuff, if I have time to watch TV. Uh, but yeah, for the most part, either trying to coach or play some kind of basketball to fulfill that ex-inner hoop dreamer, 16-year-old in me. So that's kind of stayed with me. So that's that's kind of my thing. Awesome. And Jamila, how about you? Uh, I feel like I'm always working, but right now I am running a summer camp for nutrition for black and brown youth. So because I'm doing this summer camp around nutrition, I spend a lot of times like looking at cooking shows and, you know, right now. So I've been watching a lot of Gordon Ramsay. Uh, But I would say for me, the highlight right now has been really watching this black girl go viral named Van Van, who's like a four-year-old rapper. Like, Mm -hmm. I stand for Van Van. Like, I'm watching her videos every day about her rapping because I'm like, this little girl could probably be my daughter. So. I love that. (laughs) Um, But you have to affirm for me, you're not showing up with a Gordon Ramsay persona with the kids at your camp, are you? Oh, absolutely not. (laughs) No. No, no, no. They're like, who is Gordon Ramsay, first of all? So that also (laughs) dates my age, but yeah. Very good. All right. Well, thank you all for that. So now let's start the shift. And Austin, if you would start this time, tell us a little bit about your journey into and through higher education to where you are now. Uh, journey is exactly what you can call it. I, I say I've been journeyman in higher ed. Um, I actually was started out as an eighth grade reading teacher when I was in P12. Um, wasn't very fond of that opportunity. I, I enjoyed it for what it was worth, but that's when I realized higher ed may be a better fit for me. So Mercy University, Bethune-Cookman, Clemson University, now at Florida State. Um, got in through student affairs, snuck my way over to the academic affairs. Um, that may be similar to some other people as well, but that was how I was able to fund my opportunities and stuff. So um, just kind of hopped around the last 10 years and, um, you know, where I'm at now, hopefully we'll get to a landing spot soon. So Wonderful. All right. Jamila, how about you? 
Um, so when, when we first saw this question, I was like, well, let me start from the beginning. Um, for me, I think my journey into higher education really started at an early age from like, so from fifth grade on, my mom would ship me off to summer programs. Like mm -hmm. I was spending a week at Purdue's campus from there. But then also uh, my mom was a graduate of Oakwood University, which is a small uh, historically black college. And so every year I would go to her, I would go down with her for alumni weekends. So I really think that that was like the start for me to understanding like what HBCUs are and kind of going from there. And then all my older cousins, well, I'm the third oldest, but all of the girls in my family, we've all continued the legacy of like going to HBCUs. So um, from there, and we'll talk a little about this letter, uh, went to an HBCU, then was, you know, your typical overly involved student. So went to pursue a master's in uh, higher ed, well, student affairs from Michigan State, then um, worked for a little while, then got back, went back to get a PhD uh, at the University of Wisconsin. So now um, taught full two years for faculty, and now I do DEI work. So Great. Well, thank you so much. And Travis, what's your story? Oh, yeah, I got a, I guess I'm a mix between the both, uh, Austin and Jamila. So I kind of grew up on the campus of Tuskegee uh, at the time Institute. Uh, we were particularly a part of a boys and girls club. And so we used to go down to Tuskegee all the time. I guess that's why I decided not to go. I chose a better route. Uh, and then I went to Alabama State in Montgomery for my undergrad, uh, went and got my master's. And then I started teaching K-12 science. I was a science teacher first. Um, and then I started coaching sports because my undergrad was in biology and my master's was in sports science. So I figured I could maybe put these degrees to use. Um, so, yeah, I coached sports for about three years um, and, and taught high school. And then I left and went to Clemson, uh, where I met most of you wonderful people um, and then graduated from Clemson and went on and took my first faculty post at the University of Florida and just recently concluded my first year back home at Auburn University. Great. Uh, one last question before we get to kind of the topic of the day. People say all the time, you know, student affairs, it's such a small field. And so one of the questions I always ask is who have been some of the key people for you? And in my mind, what happens is people listen to this episode and they're like, oh, they know that person. I know that person too. So I know hopefully the list is too long to cover, you know, in a few moments, but who are some people that you would sort of highlight along your journey? And Jamila, if you would talk uh, first this time and kind of share your, your key people, that would be great. Uh, so I would say there are three key people that have really had a major influence on my journey and particularly the higher ed with two of them being um, doctors, uh, Tamara Bertrand Jones and also uh, doctors, uh, Dr. Uh, Devana Foster Pierre. And those women are a part of SODA, which is Sisters of the Academy, um, which is an opportunity where they really look at helping Black women to uh, either finish their degree, um, but also uh, women that have also uh, currently in the field and helping them to pursue to to gain tenure and to go from there. And the work that Sisters of the Academy is doing, not just in education, but across all fields. 
uh, with their research boot camps. Um, and then another person would be uh, Rochelle Winkle-Wagner, uh, my PhD advisor, who really, for me, she really taught me what it means to be a really good advisor, but also a mentor um, and really meeting students where they are and encouraging them to grow from there. And particularly, especially around their research interests. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Lee. Dr. Smith. Oh, um, I think the first person that comes to mind is a person that was over student activities at Alabama State. He's retired now. His name was uh, Keith Edwards. Um, and I I didn't understand his role then or appreciate his role then, how I appreciate it now. But he was like one of those people that was always working behind the scenes, always advocating for students that, you know, you were always going the bat with at him, but you never understood that he was really doing things for your best interest. Uh, but he always used to like just drop words of wisdoms. And it's crazy because he takes me every Sunday. I get like a word of wisdom from him still to this day. And so I really appreciate um, him for that. In regards to like a larger person in student affairs, maybe that I've seen from afar, I remember when Twitter first came out and Dr. Walter Kimbrough uh, coined himself and community coined him as like the hip hop prez. And so like watching him interact with students and like meeting some of the students he interacted with, meeting him personally, um, and just kind of watching him from afar I've always like been intrigued and said like, that's the type of leadership I want to exhibit in, in student affairs and higher education. Someone that could, you know, walk with the students, but also walk with politicians and legislature, the board of trustees and things like that. And like, he always just had that common touch. Um, and so th those would be like two people, one on a very local level and one on a very national level that I could speak to. Wonderful. And Austin, who've some of your people been? Um, first, I, I would say Dr. Monica Finch. Um, she's big in enrollment management. I wouldn't say student affairs, but she was actually, she recruited me to my undergrad, uh, still in college, out of high school. And I had decided I was going to go to be at Tuskegee or Alabama A&M, and she told me I was going to go to Stillman. And uh, she put the package together and the scholarships and all that stuff. And a uh, small world, I ran into her in 2016, shortly after I finished my master's, and she was at Bethune-Cookman, and um, she was a big part of my recommendation to get into student affairs down there. And um, I hadn't, it was really weird, because it wasn't somebody I kept in touch with or anything like that. I just literally ran to the airport, she had her Bethune stuff on, and she was like, you know, she had known me for about seven years at that time. So she's always just popped in and out of my life randomly. I, I can't tell you where she's at now, but... Uh, I'm sure I ran into her again, but uh, so Dr. Monica Finch. Second one is Dr. Lanita Reese Hosley. Uh, she was my coworker at Bethune, and um, she was the first to actually put that bug in my ear about pursuing a PhD, and just gave me a lot of game uh, about student affairs and higher education beyond what I was doing at that time. So that was my first point of mentorship, I would say. Um, so she's always gave me really great advice. You know, still talk every day. And last, I would say Dr. Kroon. Um, so for me to get some decent sleep tonight, I'm going to have to mention Dr. Kroon. Uh, so, <laughs> but, uh, you know, she's my dissertation advisor, faculty advisor at Clemson and a very good mentor. Love her style of mentorship. It's a little indirect and direct at times. But uh, 
between the, the as far as the academy and, and transitioning my experiences from student affairs to the academy, um, she's really been uh, uh, instrumental in, in helping me formulate my, my career path. So Wonderful. Well, thank you all for that. I, I appreciate hearing the stories and the people who guide us, sometimes very hands-on and sometimes just in the right place at the right time. So now that you've set the stage, I'm excited to talk with you specifically about your experiences and connections to HBCUs. You've already shared a little bit about that aspect of your experience so far, but could you each talk about how you selected your undergraduate institutions? What sort of did you factor into making your decision? And whoever would like to start. Yeah, I can kick us off. And this is this is something that I'm very interested in. Like it's a, per, a perplexed situation, especially, I, I mean, I also maybe can attest to this, like making college decisions for a lot of high school students, it isn't that complex. Like it'd be simple things. <laughs> so I'm just going to name these things. Number one, the colors. My high school... <laughs> My schools all through K-12 has always been black and gold. So they became my favorite, like favorite two colors together. And so that really helped. Um, and I say that because I, I think like sometimes we have these like false conversations around like what is really going through a, a 17, 18 year old's mind when they're school, choosing college. And it could be something as simple as they football team won national championship. Right. I have no idea what the college has to offer. But for me, colors came into play. But more specifically, it was who I saw on an everyday basis. Like one of my mentors always told me, like, you can't be who you can't see. And so Alabama State started like Alabama State Teachers College. And we produce a lot of teachers. My band director, my principal, majority of my high school teachers were Alabama State graduates. And so that's all they talked about. And so those are the people I looked up to. And so for me, that played a major role in a determining factor of I want to go to Alabama State because I want to be like these people. Like these people are cool. They're they're smart. They treat me well. Like I feel seen all the time. And the third factor, I would say I wanted to be far enough to recreate myself, but not far enough away from my family. And so Alabama State was maybe an hour 20, you know, away from my hometown so I could still like be around family because grew up in a small community, but also far enough to where, you know, I could be away and people could miss me. Um, and I don't mean like miss me, but I could kind of be in a new world. And so like for me, I think those three factors, honestly, the colors, who I saw on an everyday basis or who I engaged with, and then the distance was a major factor. Mm -hmm. That's so yeah. interesting. Um for me, it was a it was tough for me. Um, so I I knew that I was gonna go to an HBCU. Just I always wanted to go to Hampton. I was like, I just want to go to HU. I had this obsession with like Jay Z and just like Virginia. Like I was like, I'm going to Hampton. I'm going to Hampton. Um, and so I applied to Hampton. I got in, but at the time I was in a UNCF pageant, United Negro College Fund pageant, and so. Um, we had to raise so much money to even like hit the stage. And if I had won, then all of my schooling would have been paid for for four years, as long as I went to one of the 39 UNCF institutions. So 
Um, ironically, I had applied, the 15 HBCUs that I originally applied to were not UNCF schools. So when I was in the pageant, I got for, I was first runner up. So they paid for my first two years for me to go to school. So this money is April. And my mom is like, so you're going to have to go where these first two years are paid for. Where are you going to go? And I was like, oh, well, it's too late for me to go to Spelman. And I was like, my cousin was a Spelman. I don't want to do that. Um, so I was like, why not go to Clark Atlanta? I was like, both sides of my family are here. Um, you know, it was 12 hours away. I probably, I went to a small high school. So 57 of us and probably five of us went out of state from in those areas. Um, so I ended up going to Clark Atlanta and it was the best decision that I could have ever made. That's dope, Jamila. Um, so for me, kind of like Travis, some some random factors that came into play. Um, Jamila, I heard you say Oakwood earlier, so I'm actually from Huntsville, Alabama. And um, so Alabama A&M, Oakwood, uh, just being an Alabama kid, Travis knows HBCUs everywhere. So I knew I was going to HBCU. Um, and like I shared earlier with Stillman, I ended up going to Stillman College, uh, but Alabama a and Tuskegee were the front runners. They offered scholarships. They came to my scholarship days at the high school and create these dramatic presentations. I was out of there. And then Ms. Finch came, comes in and she just grabs me and small world. She actually went to Alabama a and and she went to school with my dad and my mom. And she saw me in the face and was like, I think I know your parents. It was really weird. Wow. And, uh, and we just connected there. And uh, and I remember I went to, it was Wednesday. I was I went to Bible study that night at church. And I told my mom, I said, I think I'm going to Stillman. And she was like, kind of brushed me off. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, we'll talk about this at home. Like, what are you talking about? And uh, so that was a big part of it, Miss Finch. And then just leaving Huntsville, a lot of my cousins, my like I said, my family went to Alabama a and I didn't feel like I was going to grow um, like I wanted to. Uh, so Tuscaloosa was popping. Nick Saban just came to Alabama. Uh, they were winning football. So that had a little bit to do with it being in Tuscaloosa. My sister was in Tuscaloosa. And uh, my best friend at the time, he had passed away. He actually introduced me to Stillman. His brother played football at Stillman. So it was a little bit of emotional piece there. So I just felt like from that triad of things, I, I was supposed to be at Stillman. So and I'm, I'm glad I made that decision. Great. And, and if you can remember back as you're kind of getting ready to go and, you know, what were your expectations? What were you hoping for? And were those things met when you got on campus and had your experience? Um, I can go. I think for me, I just needed something Black. Um, I wanted to have a Black educational experience. I didn't have that uh, in the community I grew up in. And uh, just context-wise, Obama had just got elected, and it was a very intense time at my high school. Um, it was segregated, um, kind of one of your um, just 50-50 um, binary Alabama communities, not a lot of diversity, just black and white. So I knew that I needed to go somewhere where I was comfortable. Uh, my high school was actually bigger than my undergrad, so it was like three or three-something thousand people. So that was my big thing. I just wanted to make sure I can go somewhere where I was comfortable and my expectations were exceeded. I felt Stillman had a lot of rules. Um, that's when I learned about not walking on the grass and all that good stuff. Um, but even aside from that, not wearing hats in the building, I didn't realize I needed that structure at the time. <laughs> but um, 
I, I very much needed it. So I would say to that point, I didn't expect it, but they exceeded my expectations as far as just the structure, the organization, you know, getting into a routine of things. I think that I probably would have had a harder time if I had went to a larger school if I didn't if I didn't do that. Right. Yeah, I'll hop in. Um I love this idea of like, I just want to be in a black space. Like I'm 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 a 17 year old black boy. I just want to be loved. Uh, like w growing up right outside of Auburn, like we used to be on the campus all the time, especially in our high school days. And so like those chilly moments of people looking at you weird or like we're down there for game day. I just knew I didn't want that experience. Like I was not ready to deal with the racism that comes on the campuses of, you know, PWIs. And so for me, I wanted to be in a space to where like I could just grow. And so I growing up in Alabama again in a in a racially segregated town, I knew there was just so much more that I was missing, so much more that I needed to learn about myself and learn about like what is blackness. Because growing up, you're taught that, you know, everything negative about bl being black, like all this, you're rooted in anti-blackness. And so just listening to other people talk about their HBCU experience and learning just from other people this was social media facebook had first started and you could see people's posts i i just needed to be in that space i needed to touch this idea of black excellence and so that was like one of my expectations and it was exceeded like i if i could go back and do it over again i would enroll right now and start completely over cuz i just learned so much and learned so much academically but most importantly i learned so much about myself as a black human being thanks for that jamila so similar to austin and travis so i grew up in gary indiana so most of my teachers everyone i saw was black right so um to me you know we use this term black excellence but a lot of them had also previously attended hbcus and i knew that as someone who thrives in like smaller environments in that area, I knew I wasn't able, um, similar to Travis, like to go to Indiana. That wasn't just, I knew, I mean, I probably would have done well there, but I knew I wouldn't have been able to excel like I did when I was at Clark Atlanta in that smaller environment. And so for me, yeah, I would do it all over again. I think I would essentially maybe believe I would probably change the institution just because uh, and maybe attend like maybe apply to like FAMU or somewhere like that, just because um, I would want to be in a city or a town where the college is really centered around that area, um, especially when we think about fun. So like Atlanta, of course, we could get on the shuttle and the shuttle will take us to the club. There was something always to do. But what would it be like to be in a place where like, you know, we have parties on campus and kind of go from there. So, but that's about it. All right. Are there things that surprised you? So it sounds like you all, this decision was very intentional. There were a combination of academic, but also very personal reasons for it. Once you were in the experience, were there things positive or negative that you just didn't expect that you learned or, or experienced on campus? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I did not expect 
to meet so many different black people. Yeah. And so like growing up, you know, the media, uh, television, and then growing up in a small community, I knew of country black people. When I got to Alabama State, I met country black people, international black people, bougie black people, very intelligent black people, skateboarding black people, like you name it, they were there from playing Pokemon cards to we throwing breaking tables with spades in the union. And so like to see this fluidity and this spectrum of blackness was just so eye opening to me. But then also how people engaged and articulated their blackness, especially from a domestic and international standpoint, was freaking amazing. Like meeting people from England who were black or meeting people from the continent of Africa, or we had like a crew that came in with me my freshman year. Uh, they call themselves the the Island Girls. And so like just learning about them and like, and we're still close to this day. So like just being exposed to like the diaspora of blackness around the world was just so eye-opening and so surprising to me that I realized I had literally been living in a bubble and then it really just showed me the beauty of the idea of blackness beyond this concept of anti-blackness and, and everything about black people is bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. And I think I, I wasn't, I was more surprised to think about like, to meet people that were like generations and generations, like, oh, I'm third generation Spellman, you know, um, or meeting also people that were like, oh yeah, yeah, my uh, my mother is like the VP of Kodak. Not that I wasn't used to folks being high up. It was just like, oh, y'all got money, money. Like my little money that I think that I have is that's play play in comparison to, um, you know, what you have and what you're used to. Yeah, I agree with both of y'all. Uh, for me, it was the individuality of everybody, even the, the professionals there. And then coming from Huntsville, if you know anything about Huntsville, it's a very elitist environment uh, amongst the Black working class. So social groups, you you kind of have to fight your way in. And um, and being at Steelman, it was like, it was none of that. It was you here, you at Steelman, you got to get that clear stamp just like us, we family, you know. And um, and I can remember the Phillips and the Felicia's class of 09, probably remember. So everybody was calling all the girl, all the men Philip and all the girls Felicia for about three months before we learned everybody's name. So everybody was, you know, Huntsville Philip or, you know, whatever, the red hair Felicia, whatever. And um, I just was coming from where I came from, Spartan. And at the time it was like, I don't have to try that hard to make friends. And I appreciated that. And I was a popular guy in high school. So it was like, it was just so alleviating of, I'm just in this space and people are accepting me just for who I am and and they want to be my friend. I, I don't have to watch over my back. And it was just a very communal thing. And just and also like kind of like Jamila said, different people in the backgrounds, people were from California, Chicago, Oregon, Florida. You know, I thought that Stillman being a small HBC was going to be like Alabama heavy, but they were from all over. And I think that exceeded my expectations too. just the the, the cultural um exposure I had in Alabama. You would never think that that would happen in Alabama. So, Great. What are your connections like with your institutions now? And I'll add, not just the institution itself, but the people you met there. What do those sort of sustained relationships look like? 
so I could go. Um, I would say my aunt always jokes with me like, oh, if we go someplace, which one of your friends from Clark, Atlanta, Morehouse, or Spelman, which uh, 99 of your friends do you know has this connection or gone in that area? So um, I would say I met some of my best friends uh, still. And then if I don't know someone, I'm like, well, do you remember them in that area? Um, and making and making those connections like, oh, yeah, I remember them and kind of going from there. Um, but then I will also say, uh, for me, I'm very involved with my class. Like, uh, we're actually celebrating our 15 year anniversary uh, this year. So um, I'm really big on the giving back campaign. And what can we do to best support um, our students? I'm also trying to work with our alumni office and really helping them to think about what does it look like for students to graduate from Clark Atlanta and pursue a career in higher education um, once they graduate to like go and get the training um, within that area. Great. Um, for me, as I have a strong connection with my classmates and alums, uh, just from student leadership. Uh, administration, not necessarily super connected. Um, through a scholarship foundation, one of my classmates and Lion Brothers, we give a scholarship out to a Stillman student every year. So that's kind of how I'm involved, uh, just indirectly. And I, I pledge fraternity there, so through that as well, just through the chapter. Um, but yeah, kind of like what Jamila said, if you got classmates everywhere. If we went there at the same time, it's a mystery as to why we don't know each other. Um, so <laughs> yeah, because... So, uh, so we had to figure that out when, but other than that, uh, that's about it. We super connected though. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I would do all those sentiments, lifelong friends. So like I have a close group of friends. I met two of my best friends at college. Uh, and so we take friend trips every year. Uh, where homecoming is like a big family reunion. We're at all of each other's like momentous occasion events, like weddings and all of that. I also consider myself an unpaid employee of the university. So we have like a toxic relationship where I just be doing so much, maybe too much. <laughs> but I'm, you know, I really, really love Alabama State. And so anything that I could do to advance the mission, like they just know just to give me a call and, uh, and I'm on it. So like just really being connected to the institution, to my peers. And it's crazy because every time there's an issue if you were at Bama State in the year of 2011 to 2012, people still call me their SGA president. And so mm -hmm. they're they're always like texting and emailing like, hey, my cousin there, they have this issue. Can you help me out? Or when, when we show up for homecoming, they'll be like, oh, that's my SGA president. Um, like my birthday was yesterday and people were saying like, hey, happy birthday, SGA president. And so it's like we have that really intimate relationship to where that was almost, God, 10, year, 10 plus years ago. But those connections still remain the same. And the beauty of that is those connections now have morphed into a professional network. So when people are applying for jobs or jobs are open, I, people, you know, we're all just helping each other out, sending people information, serving as references. Hey, you know, you were great at Bama State, I would love for you to apply for this position or that position. And so I now understand the power of social networks mm -hmm. and, and what that means and the benefit of particularly going to HBCU for me as an experience and how 
when I walk into a space and I'm talking to another HBCU graduate, it's kind of like an inside joke, like, oh, we family already uh, for the most case. And so that that has been uh, a blessing to have and to be a part of. Can I add on something to that? Oh, I think, Travis, you brought up a good point about like building social networks, but also uh, like supporting one another. And um, I think that that is something, well, I know that that's something that's something that HBCUs do and instill with each other. Like we're a family and you're gonna look out for your family. And I could say, like Travis said, it's that inside joke between each other. Like, oh, we already family. We're already doing this. Like, I think that this podcast too is an example of that, right? And um, folks that have had the experiences and they know that you have gone to HBCs and like, oh no, that's my homie or that's my homegirl, my homeboy. Let me look out for them too, to give them that opportunity. Um, and I think that that's something that HBCUs really do instill. And for me, that has played a huge part in how I even view myself or see myself because I'm always like, okay, well, if you're thinking about me, well, let me add on, let me talk to somebody else too that I know that has similar interests um, within those areas or uh, may be able to connect or work with us better. So I just wanted to add on that. So thanks for bringing that up, Travis. I, I feel like this next question, you've already addressed it in a number of ways, but I want to give you a chance if there are other things that you would add. Um, what are some things that you got from your undergraduate experience that you suspect you would not have gotten um, or it would have just been dramatically different from the experience you had if you went to a historically white institution or some other different type of institution. So again, I know you've already touched on this, but I are, are there other things that you would highlight? I would definitely say radical love, like <laughs> self-love. Uh, going to HBCU taught me how to love myself, particularly as a Black man, mm -hmm. uh, and how to unconditionally love myself. And it's, it's interesting because when I'm when I'm talking to students, particularly my high school students now, we're, we're talking about this concept of love. And then I pose a question to them. I say, can you love somebody that you don't know? Like, can you intimately love somebody that you don't know? And that resonates with me because growing up surrounded by anti-Blackness, how could I truly love myself when I didn't know who I was? And so like going to Alabama State really helped me learn about me and learn to love myself unconditionally. Um, I'm not sure if I would have received that uh, at a historically white institution. And, and, and given some of the students that I, you know, engage with at Auburn and in the other campuses, University of Florida and Clemson, the undergraduate students, the things that they have to go through is so traumatic in regards to, you know, hate and racism and all the other isms, just thinking about like, when do they have the opportunity to just be, to mm -hmm. just to just bask in black joy, to just be celebrated outside of February. And so I think from my experience, particularly at Alabama State, Black History Month for us was just another month, right? We celebrated black history all the time, like 365 days. And so when February came, it was just, okay, here are some programs, but it was normal to be Black. And I'm not sure that's the case 
um, of what I've witnessed and what I've kind of spoken to with other undergraduate students at historically white colleges, I'm not sure that's the case to where the space is conducive for black students to just be without bringing anything like you like black students are celebrated for their accomplishments or if people see them as valuable but at hbcus when you walk on the campus for orientation people see you and you can just be you're not bringing nothing to the table you're just you're just there and i think that's something that alabama state taught me is how to really love myself and to love other black people now, I'm, I'm an anchor off of Travis's answer. I, I would describe it as formative. Um, I think there's an idea. I think we've gotten away from it now since it's more in the late adolescence, Gen Z era. But back then it was high school was like your formative time. And then you came to college as you are. But I can I develop just the self-love um, maturity, knowing who I was at Steelman more so than I ever would have if I had went somewhere else. It, it might have been I feel like it might have been a little clouded. If not, and uh, what I mean by that, like what Travis saying, like I can remember just the social action I was involved with with the community. Most HBCUs are on the black side of town, so when it came to voter registration and voting and those, and those types of experiences, and I wasn't you know super involved as a as a, a high student leader, but I can remember the 2012 election and um, and just you know how we hosted the you know we had a, it was a voting site and things of that sort and just how everybody on campus was just on board we didn't really talk about who to vote for it was just it was so much different than um uh, uh you know probably at a predominantly white institution as far as the, being able to have that hands-on social action experience and that's something i've taken away from me every community and state I've lived in, I just have a knack for being able to get involved with the community. And I think that goes back to my time at Steelman. Not so sure if I, if I would have had that, I probably would have had to fight harder for it if I went to another institution. It just kind of fell into my lap being at HBCU. Like, you know, you're here, you go to class, you do some extracurriculars, but you're also going to do some kind of service or social action while you're here as well. So I don't think I would have had that if I went somewhere else. And, and, and from that, came a lot of development, mental development, you know, and, and growth, so. Yeah, so I would agree with both Travis and Austin, especially around the opportunities. Uh, when I graduated from Clark Atlanta, you could not tell me uh, 20 years later, I was like, I wasn't going to come back and be the president. Like, I was ready to be the president the next day. Um, and I just think that confidence, that love was really instilled in me from day one. From the time that we got there, from learning the school song to the mantra, you know, and I also think uh, being involved in something, some kind of aspect also has played a role into uh, what I have gone to do on beyond, beyond. I'm always thinking about, okay, so what is the, what are we going to do? We're going to do this, but what, what is the, what is the giving back side that we're going to do? I think it's the culture for service um, that's instilled in me. But then I also want to talk about opportunities like there were opportunities that uh in, in regards to career that I was exposed to that I know that my peers at predominantly white institutions were not exposed to you know um the opportunity for me to interview at NASCAR comes up to me because I that 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 was huge at that time and so like now one of my classmates well no one of my peers is now the VP for diversity at NASCAR and I know he would not have gotten that experience had he not been at Clark Atlanta 
or had been at a predominantly white institution. So opportunities within those areas. So uh, career-wise as well is what I wanted to add. I, I want to add to, I like what you said about learning the song. I know I would definitely not have learned my alma mater if I went to a PWI. Um, and a lot of my peers that went to it, they they had the slightest idea, passed the fight song at the football games. And I think that's a unique experience. And for me, that was my first time because that was the first all-black space I had been in. So, And I had to learn it. It was like, lean on me, east side high. If you don't know the song, you know, we're probably going to dock you pay, whatever. But um, yeah, learning the song and the school spirit, I, I think I don't think I would have been in, as invested if I went to a, a historically white institution. Mm -hmm. So you all engage with students across sort of the educational spectrum. If you were going to give advice to students about choosing an institution, um, what sorts of things would you include? What how would you help them identify and, you know, not just whether an HBCU, but which of the HBCUs, how would you have those conversations with students or how have you that may be part of what you do every day? Yeah, I would say for me, um, it's a, a multi-layered question. So the first thing I tell my students, you want to understand the culture of the campus. So not all HBCUs share the same culture. Like we we use this term HBCU uh, from a generalizing standpoint, but it that's not that's far from the truth. And so you want to make sure that you understand the culture of the HBCU campus. Is it urban? Is it rural? Is it more East Coast, Southern, Midwest? You know, those things play a major role. Uh, is it private? Is it public? Is it a land grant? That's number one. Number two, you want to go where you can really see yourself thriving. So you want to go where you can be celebrated and toler not tolerated. And so classism does exist within the HBCU space. And so you don't want to be in a in a space to where you're you're not being accepted due to whatever perceived class that you're a part of financially. Um, and then the third one, I always talk about economics, specifically in the this time of college debt. You want to be in a space to where you, you can graduate with a, a four-year degree paying as less money as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I say that with the caveat that I will, me personally, I would rather students graduate debt-free, but I also understand the notion of I'm going to pay for this particular school because of what they have to offer. And it's, it's more of an investment and I'm going to get my money's worth. Um, and so those are like the three conversations that we typically have right now on an ongoing basis with our juniors and seniors uh, that we work with here in Alabama. Great. Um, I, for me, it's um, I like to try to approach it. This is something I've started doing probably this past year when it comes to the academics, just like any say an athlete that's being recruited you want to pay attention to the coach and the playing style of everything right and I try to influence students like if you're going to be an educator education you know what kind of conversations are you having you know with their department of ed um do you like their style of teaching do you like the professors and things the things that we probably paid attention to once we got into to our doctoral study I probably I think that on the front end of things you should pay attention to as well but definitely finances economics you want to have the best living situation 
And somebody that turned down a quote unquote a Ivy League HBCU or whatever the equivalent, don't chase the names. Uh, I think for me, I didn't realize it at the time, but um, turning down Tuskegee was a very um, good financial decision. Even though I did have scholarships, I didn't realize how much that that place really cost. So, um, so in the long run, I think that affected everything. But economics, you know, how do you see yourself academically? I think the culture and experience they all vary. But that's almost a guarantee. You know, don't, let's not get too caught up while we're in that process of determining what we want to do. We know that's a big part of it. But what is your, you know, what is your day to day going to look like? Do you like the professor? Some things that, you know, should should pay attention to. So uh, that's how I would approach it. Uh, definitely economics. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Since been at Clemson and Florida State, just and even seeing his family students, the the quality of life of a Gen Z college kid is a lot higher right now. So uh, I think that's that's a big part of their decisions uh, nowadays. So the 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 struggling college student thing it seems to be very unpopular now. So wherever you can make that and that happen there. I would agree with them. Okay. Well, so I'm going to kind of combine these next two questions because they're both forward looking. Um, so there's a lot of conversation about the enrollment cliff and, you know, depending on who you listen to, it's going to happen in 25. It's going to happen in 26. I think we know it's going to happen at some point. So I'm interested in your take on the impact that just fewer students to go to college is going to have on HBCUs, but also what are some other issues as you think about the future, um, things that are happening now that are going to unfold in different ways, um, or just, you know, what are you anticipating? Um, and it, I think a lot of times we focus on the negative, but there might be some points of hope or, you know, some good things that are coming down the road. So as you look at the future of HBCUs in higher ed, what sorts of things come to mind for each of you? I'm excited. I'm excited about the future of HBCUs, specifically uh, the enrollment. As we talk about enrollment increasing uh, over the last five to seven years, I'm excited to see how HBCUs take advantage of it. And so even though we're seeing a, a decline in enrollment in higher education, we're, we're seeing counter trends as it relates to HBCU enrollment and particularly um, HBCU applications. I think uh, Alabama A&M this year received, uh, my numbers might be off, between 15 and 20,000 applications. That is amazing. Um, I'm excited to see and something I'm predicting, an increase in, a, a steady increase in HBCU enrollment, particularly as it relates to adult education and new of uh, freely incarcerated people. So people who are were, were incarcerated, as we see this, uh, these federal policies come down the pike that these these individuals uh, can now receive federal funding. I would hope that our HBCUs could take up that mantle to help educate uh people who were formerly incarcerated. Um, I'm, I'm looking at thinking about what Claflin is doing right now um, in their their uh, program for incarcerated people. Um, and so I think HBCUs have a rich history of educating people that society 
has deemed inhumane. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the major components for me of HBCUs is seeing the humanity in people and, and giving people an opportunity. So I, I'm predicting it. Um, I know there's a couple HBCUs that are working on some programs and some initiatives that can address um, people that are, that will be released in the next five to 10 years uh, from their uh, incarceration. And so I, I think that there, we're going to see a, a increase of HBCU enrollment. It might not be the typical 18 to 21 year old student, but it's gonna, I think it's gonna, uh, adult education and untraditional students uh, will play a major role um, in HBCU populations in the coming future. Yeah, Travis, I think you brought up a good point. What Claflin is doing, I think uh, what Paul Quinn is doing um, in their areas, especially in thinking about uh, like farming and those areas, but even, I think some of the work that Clark Atlanta is doing and what they're doing and trying to train the next generation of leaders um, at historically black colleges um, is also where uh, I'm excited to see where the growth is and where they're going. But then I will also say, um, I think um, sports. I think, you know, we've always known about HBCU sports from the Magic City Classic to other classics that are that are being done. But I also think uh, Deion Sanders brought a new awareness to um, HBCU sports, um, and particularly around being able to sponsor them and some of the organizations uh, in helping them to improve like uh, arenas and football fields, but also have packed stadiums. Uh, within those areas. So I'm excited to see how that effect will also trickle down to what sports may be also non-revenue generating and particularly around like areas around track and field because North Carolina's uh, A&T has like one of the top track and field um, teams in the country where they're sending students to the Olympics all at all times. So. Yeah, I agree. I, um, I think as far as the future, um, I mean, since the inception of HBCUs, we've always found our niche within cultural advancement and what that looks like for Black people. And Travis hit on it right now, incarcerated students, adult education. Uh, but over the last 120 years, we've always adjusted. You know, we didn't start out uh, just with traditional four-year institutions. That was for a reason. It wasn't, you know, because it's based off of need. So I think finding our niche within cultural advancement, I trust the HBCUs will find that next niche. And uh, like my my uh, alma mater, uh, Stillman College, has this elaborate adult education program. They're going full time. I'm not sure how the ins and outs of it, but they're going full time and they have like authentic student engagement experiences. They're not just going to night school and going to class and then running off campus. Like you're seeing um, seasoned adults um, get involved with Greek life and athletics, spirit squad, things of that sort. Uh, people that probably didn't have the opportunity traditionally. So. Um, that and then also what Jamila said, I think the leadership of HBCUs uh, moving forward, I'm more excited about that. And I think that HBCUs have had to, as particularly your private and, and religion based ones, have kind of had to scale it back a little bit um, to be more accepting uh, to, to broader audiences and populations, student populations. Um, but then Cookman and Stillman, I've seen them both have to adjust 
over the years uh, where I was at Stillman at a time when, you know, you had to go to chapel once a week, you had to do a lot of different things on time at a certain time. And they've kind of lifted those types of rules, not to come off a of tradition, but more so just to transition with the times. And, you know, people are making money 24 hours a day now, not just within nine hours. So students are working, things of that sort, just adjusting to that environment. And I think the younger professionals, uh, I not want to say younger, but just newer professionals, this newer generation coming up, I would say us, um, are more, you know, head to the ground, understanding how to really, uh, you know, give students an authentic experience and provide the services they need. So I'm more excited about the leadership enrollment cliff, not necessarily worried about that because we'll find our niche. Um, we've always done that. Uh, there's been enrollment cliff, you know, almost every 20 years with for some, you know, whatever reason that is. Um, I, I'll add real quick. Um, I, I love this idea of like, there, I feel like there's a new wave of leadership at HBCUs, particularly leadership that is not asking for permission, that is just doing things. And I, I love that. They're not seeking validation from whiteness. They're they're taking the mantle to another level. And I could sit here and critique Deion Sanders all day long. But I will say one thing he did do, particularly in his case, was shine a light, particularly at Jackson State, to where we have something to say. Like now HBCUs have been saying this for centuries that we're here we're prevalent and we have great things. But if you take somebody like a Deion Sander, who is already a superstar, that comes with something that comes with the social networks um, and things like that. And so we're seeing leaders now tap into their social networks to advance the mission of the institution. Uh, but I think that's more of a generational thing, particularly as we're starting to see like millennials take on these roles. That's what we know. That's what we do. Um, and so I'm excited to see, especially as it related to the, the COVID-19 response and how HBCUs were out at the forefront saying we're going to put student safety first. We're going to not just send students home, but make because a lot of students don't have homes to go to. And so how do we keep them on campus, but keep them safe? Right. And then when they come back, how do we still do engagement, but from a student safety perspective? And that response was just overwhelmingly positive. And a lot of institutions leaned on HBCUs for, for guidance. Um, and so I want to I think we're going to see more of that type of leadership. I also think, too, we're going to see more and more uh, people highlight like we know the greatness of HBCUs. Right. But I think when we have opportunities where you're having um nba stars that are actually going back to like chris paul like no this is important for me to go back and get my degree from winston-salem versus where i started off at from you know i think we're gonna see more embracement uh than we've had in the past and particularly around the exposure of hbcus especially around some of the smaller schools that may not that are, are not as famous as your Howards and Sam's and Spelman's in those areas. I think the reception too, um, I might get crucified for this, but from working at HBCU and, and graduating from one, uh, our value classically is with is in the band, is in the culture, is in the Greek life. And just seeing like what you said, Jamila, like there's so many other parts culturally that we have to offer that are very self-sufficient. 
that yeah. are exposed, you know, to the world. And I'm excited about those pieces too, like Travis said, your skateboarders and stuff. Like I didn't know black people skateboard until I got to steal them. So just those types of things that we have to offer, I'm excited to see as well. Um, from you know your Dion's and your sports and the track and field. I was watching track and field last week and seeing ANT qualify for the nationals and just little things like that. Um, just seeing that we have more things to offer than what was, you know, more popular 20, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Well, it goes back to what you all were saying at the beginning that it's not one type of institution. Like they're not the same. And um, like many things that we don't know a lot about in like the dominant culture, we tend to paint with very broad strokes instead of looking at the unique aspects of different contexts. So, well, those are the end of my scripted questions, but I wanna leave space if there are things you wanna talk about, if there are things I should have asked that I didn't bring up, any closing thoughts that you all have? Well, two quick points, number one, Jamila and Austin keep talking about track, and they failed to mention that Alabama State right now is in the finals for the four by one. Um, so we not we gonna put some respect on Alabama State name, and that four by four by four team just competed. I didn't see North Carolina A&T nowhere um, <laughs> in the finals, so we just gonna do that. And then number two, I'm gonna pose this to the to the lar- larger audience: if you have to ask what's the relevancy of HBCUs, then you need to ask yourself. Why do you ask that question? Mm. You don't deserve a response until you actually understand the systems of oppression, your perspective and approach is rooted in. Um, and so that would be kind of like my closing statement. But put some respect on Big Bama State. We are <laughs> swag. <laughs> I've got this swag title. I don't know how to act. Well, uh, <laughs> I would say... Um, Relevant to the community of practice in SACSA, I would just challenge student affairs professionals, HBCU and PWI, to the HBCU work and the research and the leadership development. Um, I just, me and Travis talk about this sometimes, and just that being housed at HBCU campuses, that research, that development for student leaders, um, being housed at HBCU campuses and going to visit and um yeah, going to visit these HBCU campuses if you're not familiar and just, you know, actually being more inclusive of the HBCUs with our community of practice and just that challenge of the HBCU work being done at HBCUs. Um, I think that's mm-hmm. something I'm excited to see uh, moving forward. Along the lines of like Austin and Travis is like, don't just use HBCUs for your research, right? In those areas like, oh, this this just seems phenomenal. The work, like it's a one and done situation. People are just coming and see like what we're doing, but mm-hmm. also do what you need to do in order to also best support them. Like, yes, I've done this work, but what are ways that you can also give back mm-hmm. to those institutions and even to those students in ways that may be, that can be on a grand scale, but they can even be on a minute scale. So give back and don't just do it just because you said you're doing it. But I guarantee you, if you have an idea and why not think about ways that you can partner with the HBCU, with this, what's in that area, or even provide that exposure to others that may be that are interested in that. Great. Well, thank you all very much. And 
Um, you let me know when it's time for us to get back together again and talk some more. Uh, this has been a fun episode. I, I've learned a lot and appreciate your time. I think there's no slow time for any of us anymore. It, maybe that used to be a thing once upon a time, but everybody I know is busy all the time. So for you all to make this a, a priority, I really appreciate. As we wrap up, I would love to close with something that's bringing you hope right now. It can be about the topic we talked about. It can be something related to your work. It can be something in your personal lives. But Travis, would you start us off with something that's providing you a sense of hope? Something that's providing me a sense of hope is my son every day. So watching him authentically uh, bask in black boy joy and just being happy is providing me hope that there are still decent human beings out here uh, that could operate in joy, operate in radical love, and that can share like in the share together in harmony and peace. And so like, that's bringing me hope that the world is not going to burn up tomorrow. Wonderful. How about you, Austin? Well, first, Dr. Bach, I'm going to correct you. You have, you're, you're going to be thoroughly immersed into HBCU culture because you're on my committee for my dissertation. Good point. Good point. I know you're on break right now. Just want to remind you, throw that out there. We got some stuff to get through, so don't worry about that. We'll be talking about HBCUs this year. I would say for me, I graduated college 10 years ago. Um, I started telling myself this probably a month or two ago once I got the 10-year anniversary, and um, it's okay to look back. I think we have this idea that don't look back. Um, it's just a mantra moving forward, but hindsight 2020, just and when I say that in the context of just counting your blessings and where you're at and where you come from, and um, and I can remember my first apartment in um, in Washington D.C. I had a uh, two bar stools from Target and some borrowed furniture that I slept on in the bed. And I watched TV in the bed and things of that sort, and just little things like that. And I was like, man, how did I do that for a whole year? And now I'm just like, when I come home, it's not like super laid out, but I got a couch, I got things to lay on, I got a nice kitchen, you know, just those types of things. And I think we get caught up in what's next, and just looking back, like, man, you know, this wasn't even a thing. Uh, when I was 22 years old and now I'm 31, uh, just the quality of life and what I built for myself, uh, like Snoop Dogg says, you know, thank yourself, thank me. And um, and the fact that I look back at it and say, like, you know, just imagine what it's going to look like 10, 10 more years from now, uh, the situation. So more of a personal thing, not necessarily work related, but just don't be afraid to look back. It's OK to, you know, look back and compare sometimes and realize how far you've come. Great. And Jamila. What are your thoughts? I'd probably say there's a few things that I'm looking forward to, like in all areas. I think uh, similar to Travis, like my nieces, my uh, nephews and my little cousins just give me hope and thinking about like just the joy that they're experiencing, that there is, that there are good people in the world. Um, when I think about myself, uh, really entangling um that rest is resistance, right? Um, um, and thinking about how important it is for myself to make sure uh, that I'm taking care of myself because if I don't take care of myself, how can I be my best set for others? Um, and wanting to also fight in the fight for around anything. Um, and then lastly, um, kicking off some work uh, that I'm doing with some HBC with some HBCU queens and just thinking about uh, the future opportunities uh, that can arise from there. I think being on this podcast even 
has given me an idea like, hmm, maybe I should think about doing something like that um, with them. So, yeah. I love that. Well, you let me know when you do. And if you want us to air it as a crossover episode, I'm all about it. That would be great. Well, thank you all very much. I really have enjoyed the conversation today. Today's Essay Today podcast is brought to you by Saxa. We thank them for their support. As we close, I'd like to leave you with a quote today from Ella Fitzgerald. Just don't give up what you're trying to do. Where there is love and inspiration, I don't think you can go wrong. My name is Michelle Botcher, and it has been a pleasure to host this episode. Have a beautiful day.